And this is our last week in the Sermon on the Mount. These words uh, do not come from Jesus. They come from Matthew's reflection on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, all of the things that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I I don't remember who pointed me to this. um, Or maybe it was some sort of early algorithm that got me back in the day. But the same summer that like the lights turned on to the person and work of Jesus where I gave my allegiance to Jesus, however you want to phrase that thing, that same summer I encountered a Bible teacher. And this Bible teacher goes by the name John Piper. Just by a show of hands, any familiarity with that name? Yeah. Um, John Piper's like cilantro in Christian spaces. He will split a room 50-50. It's like you love him or you hate him. Uh, But, you know, be that as it may, however you feel about that. In the early days of following Jesus, I, I, I listened to all of the Piper things. He makes all of his resources free, so I read as much as I could. I would print off at the library whole PDFs, like Desiring God, like the whole book, just 300-some pages. I'm just sitting there like, this is my tuition right here. I'm getting it back. And that's what I would do. I would just read and listen. And, and soon enough, I realized I, I went to school in East Lansing, Michigan, and uh, Right there in that town, there was another preacher who kind of ran in the same circles as Piper named Kevin DeYoung, and he was pastoring a little reformed church. And so uh, soon enough, I became what the internet dubbed the young, the restless, and the reformed. You generally know this by the shape of one's face. It's usually bearded if you're a man. Um, And I did what I could to join that fashion. But why do I start with this little anecdote on the last teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, You see, there was a a flavor to this subgroup of evangelicalism. Uh, You you could describe it with three, like, terms of certainty, hypermasculinity, and study. Certainty in the sense that the conclusions that you would encounter from the scriptures were rock solid. And that certainty, what it aided against was this existential angst. I just started following Jesus, and what I wanted was someone to say, this is the way. There's no complexity, no nuance. This is the thing. And I was like, fantastic. And then the masculinity was just, it affirmed all the positions I had in my life. So I was never challenged. It was really comfortable. I did really well in that space. I know you're surprised. And then study. I have this curiosity about all things Bible. And there's something about this subgroup of evangelicalism that has embraced vigorous study. They talk about the pastor as scholar or theologian. And I was, I said, yes, this is great. I want to study. And, and, and just please hear me clearly. I'm not trying to throw shade at this tribe. In fact, in this season of life, I, I learned to revere and honor the word of God. It is both gift and guide. Those are things that still are in my life, deeply woven in the fabric of who I am. But what I neglected to see was how easy it was to kind of manipulate the scriptures to hold up my assumptions and never really challenge my position in life. 
And, and it would do so by um, pursuing questions that had little, like the scriptures have little to no interest in answering. Questions uh, related to, I don't know, things like salvation schemas. So a salvation schema, when exactly did you know that you were saved? And was it regeneration or justification that took forth and all of that, that took place? And all these theological terms would come in. So you'd ask these questions and it would signal kind of where you were in this camp. Or it would be questions about the composition of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Does the Son extend from the Father and the Spirit from the Son? Or what's going on there? And how is that organization of the Trinity used to talk about male and female roles in the church? Questions about that. Or even questions about the will of God and human freedom. Yes, I'm, I'm kind of disclosing that I was a full-on Bible nerd from day one, and it's just, it's gotten worse. Um, See, I think questions like this are fine. In fact, I think the exploration of these questions are good to be done in community for us to receive challenge and question the questions themselves. But what I've learned, and I'm more confident in now than ever, is that the Jewish and Christian scriptures, they are not this neat and tidy organization of texts. In fact, they're often messy. There's things that you're going, why does this say something here and then say something different here? Like you'll see this in the Torah, in the law. It'll talk about do this. It'll talk about roasting the uh, Passover lamb and then it'll, and not boiling it. And then it'll talk about boiling the Passover lamb. Well, which one is it? Do I roast it or, and not boil it or do I boil it? So there's these things that all of a sudden you're studying, you're like, hold on, what's going on? See, the, the, the scriptures are not neat and tidy. So what else is going on? This is my point. And kind of what we're going to hover over here this morning is, what if our vision of Jesus is shaped more by commentaries about Jesus than Jesus himself? What if how we think about Jesus is flavored, colored in by these like peripheral commentaries about Jesus than Jesus himself? And when I think about this, our teaching text, just the two verses, it's, it's really curious to me that after hearing all that Jesus has to say, in, in this text that we know is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, after hearing all of that, the collective response bubbling up from the crowd is amazement. They hear Jesus kind of reorganize the blessed life around those who mourn, around the poor, around those who are willing to insert themselves into conflict and see some good come. Those are called peacemakers. So Jesus reorganizes the blessed life around these types of people and then even says the kingdom of God comes first to these folks. So they hear Jesus do that. And then they hear Jesus say some more things. They hear him affirm the law and the prophets, which is kind of like the shorthand for the Bible of Jesus' day. So they hear Jesus affirm the Bible. But then he says, you have heard it said, but I say. And in some sense, to draw out the wisdom of the Bible, to draw out the wisdom of the law. And then in light of all of this, all of Jesus' teachings, they're amazed. But... What is the thing that is worthy of amazement in Jesus' teaching? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why is it that this is a thing? Is it the unprecedented nature of Jesus' speech? Is it, is, it, is it that this rabbi from a northern part of Israel has set his teachings alongside the Torah, which is unprecedented? Because typically what you would do if you're a rabbi is you would say, well, you know, Hillel says this thing or Shammai says this thing, but I'm saying this thing. And you would interpret the Torah in light of what other rabbis have said. But Jesus comes along and he just sets his word right next to the living word. And you're like, hold on a second. What's, what are you doing here, Jesus? 
And that might be novel, but is that the amazing thing? See, what seems to elicit the crowd's amazement is the authority of Jesus. Listen again how Matthew says this. When they hear Jesus teach, they hear Jesus teach as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. If you're reading in the ESV, you might have not as their scribes. See, this is not the only place that one would encounter an amazed crowd in the gospel according to Matthew. In fact, it's this little sub-theme that emerges in Matthew. If you're looking for it, and I hope now that you always see it, See, the, the crowds will be amazed, yes, at Jesus' teaching, but you also have a smaller crowd, namely the disciples, who will be amazed at Jesus when he calms the storm. You'll have crowds who are amazed at Jesus when they see healing take place, when Jesus casts out demons. You'll see this authority on display, this amazement kind of bubble up from the crowds when Jesus forgives sins. This sub-theme of amazement based on Jesus' authority develops through the gospel according to Matthew. See, it is the authority of Jesus that is amazing. And so what we come to at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is this amazement with who Jesus is because of his authority. And you see, back in my young, restless, and reformed days, this was sort of a no-duh moment. I was like, well, well, of course. I mean, you're seeing the embodiment of the gospel of the kingdom. You are seeing the good news on display in Jesus of Nazareth. Of course he is amazing. And then in that little subgroup, there's like the caricatures of buff Jesus with like, I, I don't know, so it just is what it is. And, but, but Jesus, it's like, yes, of course he's amazing. Of course the crowds are amazed because it's Jesus. It's like, well, and, and although that, I think that's true, it's a rather thin answer. Because once you start poking holes in it, you're just, just well, what is the amazing? What is it? And what was so curious is this is the answer that I would often encounter when I start asking these questions. Well, what is the thing? It would be an appeal to the Apostle Paul. Go to Galatians chapter 3. You would hear something like this. Well, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So this is the thing that's amazing is Jesus is saying it's no longer law, but it's grace. The, the passage goes on. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He, that is Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So it's not law, but it's faith. This is why Jesus is amazing and the conversation would close. No longer law, but faith rules because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And in my early days of learning to trust Jesus, I just took this position on board. And why? In part, because it's true. Indeed, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The gospel has dawned, and therefore I am free from that. But what that meant, or at least my interpretation of the data points as they were presented to me, was that Jesus has authority, not those pesky scribes or Pharisees or the teachers of the law, because now that Jesus has come, it is grace, it is faith, it is no longer law or works. And what I didn't know at the time was that I was readily taking on board this framework of thinking called law and gospel. And what I've learned coming to Iowa is there's a lot of Lutheran folks here or, or people who grew up Lutheran or just happened to go into a Lutheran megachurch for a season of their life. Law and gospel comes from the one from whom Lutheranism extends, Martin Luther himself. It is this dichotomy. 
in some sense. And the framework goes like this, that the gospel supersedes the law. That is, it, it stands in the place of the law. And the dominant note that emerges from that law and gospel song sounds like this. Maybe this will sound familiar to you. The law is given to show you that you cannot keep it. Does it sound familiar to anybody? Maybe not that one. Okay, let's try this one on then. God gave the law to show you where you fall short. Now, there are aspects to, to these statements that I think are true because the, the law, as it was described, I think is, it's, it's helpful. The scriptures will talk about the law sort of like a mirror showing you your sin sickness. So it reveals to you this, this thing that you cannot do, but what the law fails, the gospel completes. The law shows you your sin sickness, but what the gospel does is it actually does something to it. And so I heard that, and and I said, well, that sounds pretty convincing. And John Piper, you are very convincing to me in this season. So I just took that on board. You see, in this tradition, what that means is that the law stands over you to condemn you. And in turn, the only suitable explanation for the law is that it is given to drive you to Christ Jesus. And it is there in Christ that you can only ever rest. That is the purpose of the law, to drive you to Christ for rest and refreshment from the weary and burdensome nature of the law, of building your own righteousness, as the saying goes. In some, the gospel kind of, it becomes a solution for our inability to meet the requirements of the law. And... Uh, while this argument lends itself towards certainty, and I think the rhetoric is quite strong, um, and there's something compelling about certainty. If you are a follower of Jesus, whether you are a new follower of Jesus or you are still just trying to say, what does it look like for me to abide or remain with Jesus? There is something about Jesus that's intensely frustrating because he will share some information and then just leave it there with you. It's almost as though he's saying, yeah, yeah, practice this. Try it on. See what it's like. So when someone says, no, this is the answer, it's like, well, that removes all of the frustration that I have to actually work this thing out. But what's so challenging, or at least it was to me then and it still is now, is like it's this certainty and this strength of the rhetoric seems to set God's word against God's word. Uh, think with me uh, about this for just a moment. There are whole poetic reflections in the scriptures, in the Psalms, where we encounter words like this. This is Psalm 19. This is uh, verses 7 through 11. Just hear this and, and see how this tastes. The law of the Lord is perfect or complete, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Just hear this again, folks. The law of the Lord refreshes. It, it yields wisdom. There is joy. There is illumination. That is, you can see a path forward in the, amid darkness. This is the law. Does that sound condemning to you? I, I don't think so. If, if you're still kind of on the fence, and this is, these are just two psalms. Try on Psalm 119. 
This is 176 verses of straight fire. Like this is essentially poetic reflection on the law. It seems as though the psalmist in Psalm 119 is looking back to Psalm 1 and saying, what does it look like to be the person who's meditating on the law of Yahweh day and night? This is the type of stuff that comes out. This is like the tracks that are on repeat on their Spotify playlist back in the day. Psalm 119, the things that come out of that, they declare how the law illumines. It gives life. It opens up the path. It gives understanding. You see, what if the amazement that is laying hold of the crowds is that sort of uh, too good to be true, that serendipitous type of feeling? What if they hear and encounter Jesus and they're like, could, could this be the one? Could this Jesus of Nazareth really be the one in whom all of the promises and purposes of God find their yes and amen? Could this Jesus be the greater than Moses figure that the prophet spoke of? Is this the anointed one? Is Jesus the one? If so, that would change everything. But isn't Jesus also Joseph's son? Wasn't he the dude from up in... What good, what, what good comes out of Nazareth, Leonard? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't know. So it's this... I wonder if the amazement laying hold of the crowds, is that too good to be true sort of feeling? See, what if, this is a question I would love for you to wrestle with beyond the scope of our time this morning. What if this whole thing is not a zero-sum game where it's either law or gospel? where it's either curse or Jesus. What if Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the sending of his spirit, what if Jesus is how we see the wisdom and the beauty of the law? What if in Jesus we actually get to see the way that the law gives life and light? What if there's another way forward that isn't curse and condemnation but grace and faith? See, to start, it would clarify a lot about how Jesus talks about himself. It seems as though Jesus is constantly referring back to the scriptures, the law and the prophets, to make sense of his identity. So it's not as though Jesus is, is in some sense condemning the law. He says, I'm not here to do away with it. I'm actually here to bring it to its completion. And just take, for example, the words that Jesus says preceding, or how Matthew describes Jesus' ministry preceding the Sermon on the Mount. This is actually where we started this whole sermon series. Matthew 4, 23, this is what we read. Jesus went throughout the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. He's going to church on, on Sundays. Well, it's like Sabbath, so Friday night or something, Saturday. So he's going. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among them. And this might sound rather benign. You're like, okay, these are the contours of Jesus' ministry. What's he doing? He's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing. Those all sound like pretty Jesus-y things to do, like that that maps onto my expectation of Jesus. But to the Jewish imagination, the imagination that is saturated with prophetic expectation, like just, just for a moment here, this is a little bit of a sidebar. What if you showed up on a Sunday morning to the gathered, church, like gathered body and the promise that Jesus offers that he is present to us when we gather in his name? What if you were like, Jesus, I'm here to encounter you. And not because you're an extrovert or, I don't know, you want to get hyped or something, but you're like, I'm trusting you to meet me in this space. See, there is this prophetic expectation that is saturating the imagination of Jesus' listeners where they're asking, is this the one? And what Matthew does in Matthew 4.23 is he drops this bomb. And I don't know if you heard it, but let me, let me tell you what it is. That, that bomb is the phrase, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. 
You might be going, why is that a bomb? <laughs> well, because back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, we hear these words. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who bring good news, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. By the way, at this point, like Zion is in ruin. Like, so this, to a people who are displaced, who are out from the land of promise, there is this one who will come. And when Jesus comes on the scene, proclaiming and preaching, or what you could just say, gospeling the good news of the kingdom, this means that the prophet Isaiah's poem, it, it was more than a pipe dream, that indeed Yahweh reigns as king. So when Jesus comes on the scene, not only does he see himself as this beautiful messenger, he sees himself as the coming king. And you're like, well, that sounds kind of complex. How can you be the one who is the herald? I thought that was John the Baptist. But like, just hold on for a second. Think about the composition of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus helps us to reimagine who is the kingdom of God for. It's for the poor. It's for those who are mourning. It's essentially for all the wrong people. They're the ones to whom the kingdom comes first. First, Jesus is saying, this is it. By the way, if you want to step in this, there's a new way to live. It's going to be like loving your enemies. Jesus then embodies this. He, he not only sees himself as the beautiful messenger, he sees himself as the coming king. It's like the seedbed of the gospel kind of bursts forth in all of its brilliance in Jesus. And by the way, this will be the thing that sustains this church. It's not going to be some like amped up Bible nerd at the front excited about Jesus. It will be Jesus himself through the spirit who sustains this church, who grows us into the type of people who can sustain amid suffering. It will be Jesus who builds the church and we get to partner with him in that. But you see, um, Jesus does these things in the ways that we least expect it. Just think again about the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is how Jesus describes God's reign. Because it is not successful. It's not where might is right. This is not the kingdom of God. Instead, the kingdom of God goes to the weakest. It goes to those who love and serve the poor. And more, Jesus is talking about to live under God's reign is to respond to evil by loving your enemies, for praying, to like actually pray for them, and then to forgive them. This is the upside-down kingdom that, that we're invited to inhabit right now. And if it feels like this is a pipe dream or far off, it's actually quite simple. <laughs> Just imagine in your mind eye the person who you are most frustrated with. Okay, do you got him? Jess, you're looking at me like, is it me? Um, okay, this is what it looks like to inhabit the kingdom, is to ask the Spirit to help you pray for them. And then, not just to stop there, but when you see them, to move toward them with grace as God has moved toward you in Christ. This is the simplicity and the audacity of the kingdom of God, is in subtle and private acts of faithfulness and obedience that actually elevate the good of others over and against ourselves. This is why the kingdom of God is beautiful. Because it will be built by Jesus. This is what the Spirit is inclined to. Jesus, for 30 years in, in total obscurity, is just abiding, remaining with the Father. And then for three years, we have a evidence, a witness to his public ministry. What if your life with God in Christ is just obscure? What if nothing goes viral in your life 
ever. <laughs> what if that is the blessed life? To not be noticed, to not really get the promotions when you probably deserve it, but to do it with joy. Now that sounds terrible and beautiful at the same time. See, what if our vision of Jesus is shaped more by commentaries about Jesus than Jesus himself? In other words, what if we have unknowingly pit the law against the gospel for so long that we just don't remember what the gospel is in the first place? What if we see salvation as a, a thing to get us out of here and into the heavens when God in Christ is trying to get the heavens into us? To like imagine that the world is big and beautiful and that is God's redemptive purpose, to renew all things. And so to close, which really means this is now the second half of the teaching, um, I'm just going to give a brief word on a couple of these things. Uh, first, evangelism and then prosperity, commentaries that are reshaping our vision of Jesus. So what if our vision of Jesus is shaped more by evangelism for Jesus than Jesus himself? And disclaimer, I am not down on evangelism. I, I, I think that most every one of us here is here because somebody had the audacity to invite us to trust Jesus. If you're here otherwise, like the Spirit just prompted you this morning, and you're like, or that's how you can, like, please share that testimony and build up our faith because that's amazing. But my guess is that we too are invited into that. Like, we're invited into these moments where the Spirit of God prompts, invites, calls, whatever language feels appropriate or accessible to you. The Spirit essentially invites us to, to attest to the life of Jesus that we're living in flamboyant ways that feel really uncomfortable, like praying for the cashier at a checkout line, or simply just talking to your mother-in-law or your brother who is far from Jesus and not doing it with like a vindictive tone. See, when I talk about evangelism, I'm, I'm talking about a different framework than that. I'm talking about it in, in these terms, in this schema, and see if this sounds familiar to you. You are a sinner separated by God, from God, but God in Christ loves you, and he, that is Jesus, demonstrated his love by dying for you, and if you trust him, you will go to heaven when you die. Does this sound familiar? Okay. By the way, um, this is the track that I went through to say yes to Jesus, so I cannot, like, sit here... This commentary on Jesus, it is not abhorrent, it's not heterodox, it is not evil, it's just, it's not the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. See, my guess is, if myself included, that many of you have worked through this little schema, declared your allegiance and trust in Jesus, and I praise and bless God for that. But to my mind, search as you may, you will not find in the gospels that arrangement or movement toward God and Christ. You simply won't. And where evangelism kind of narrows in on this, this transaction your declaration of allegiance to Jesus, Jesus focuses in on transformation out of the way of the world and then into the way of, of love over a lifetime. And is that moment of declaration significant? Yes, it is. And the moment of discipleship, a lifetime of discipleship is equally important. You do not get one without the other. Unfortunately, that has... That was my experience. Like I was being discipled by John Piper through a screen rather than a person in living color. And you might go, well, well, hold on. Like, what is this whole thing? If evangelism narrows in on transaction and Jesus is for transformation, why is this? Because life with Jesus is just that. It is life with Jesus. 
And the gospel of the kingdom is simply not about meeting the, the minimal entrance requirements. No, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom is more like a marriage. And just stay with me here. Th think about it like this. If I were to say to Jessica, my wife, if I were to say, what is the least amount of work I have to do to stay married to you? A, if you know Jess, she might, that you know how ridiculous that statement is. And B, it would demonstrate how I entirely miss what the concept of like a covenant is with her. See, when Jesus thinks about eternal life or he thinks ab about what life with God is like, he says it this way. This is in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, the only true God and Jesus Messiah whom you have sent, that they may know you. See, this relational knowing this, like, if you, if you know, you know, like, this idea, this deep intimacy, this is at the heart of the gospel of the kingdom, to know God, the only true Father, the one true God, that Jesus wants to know you like, like one closer than a brother, like, like the king who is drawn near, like the hu truly humble one, like the prince of, this is how Jesus wants to know us, to form us into people of love so we might be those who move through that love. I remember hearing one time that the most loving thing that I could do for my neighbor was to share the gospel with them. And essentially it came with this either or thing, like either they will hear and respond to Jesus or there's condemnation. And that's not what I'm getting at here, but what if the most loving thing that we could do for our neighbor is love them? In other words, meet them right where they are and attend to their life and not have to carry the burden of convincing them. Now, if the spirit is like inviting you and how do you know, my, my, this, is, um, this is like a, a pro tip. This is not pastoral advice. This is just like give deference to that thing that you might think be the, it might be the spirit or it might just be the tacos you had the night before. If it's like, I would do well to share with my neighbor something about, and you're like feeling that thing rising up in your tummy, just give deference. Maybe that's the spirit, maybe not. Worst thing that can happen is you look like an idiot, which is actually not that bad of a thing anyways. It would probably be good for you, but if the most loving thing you can do for your neighbor is simply love them, that opens up this beautiful life of curiosity and wonder where you don't have to carry the burden of convincing people that Jesus is Lord. Instead, you can embody the love that you've received in him. And if that's the commentary of evangelism, what about prosperity? What if our vision of Jesus is shaped more by prosperity from Jesus than Jesus himself? If one is this like almost movement of guilt that compels us to, to move people across the threshold, across the line for Jesus, then prosperity is this inclination to receive from Jesus. So you may know the prosperity gospel is something like health and wealth or world of, word of faith, but there's a, a scholar out of Duke, Kate Bowler, who's like the world's leading person on um, prosperity gospel. And she gives this definition. She defines it as a wildly popular Christian message of spiritual, physical, and financial mastery that dominates not only much of the American religious scene, but some of the largest churches around the globe. See, basically the idea is that God's victory in Jesus is our inheritance by faith. 
Now, now, to be sure, the Apostle Paul will say things like, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you actually have everything in Christ. But notice this phrase here, this qualifier, by faith. So there is, there's something interesting about this flavor of commentary is that there's some subtleties and some truths, but things that also need to be parsed out. Because by faith, according to the prosperity gospel, you can have victory over your finances. By faith, you can have victory over your health. By faith, you can essentially have victory over the whole of your life. And while evangelism in its, in its worst forms can manipulate to yield converts, prosperity gospel does something, to my mind, far more sinister, is that it manipulates to yield financial gain. Because it attaches these token statements that go something like this, um, first fruits, or, or a seed gift, or the law of the tithe, Essentially, you'd probably heard something like this. If you give in faith $100, the Lord will, if you sow in faith 100 the Lord will reap 10000 for you. Can I get a witness? You can give in that black box right there. You actually can give in that black box, but um, I don't know if the Lord will give anything in, in advance other than cultivating the virtue of generosity. So, so this is what Bowler calls hard prosperity. But there's also another thing that's on the rise called soft prosperity. And soft prosperity is infused with sort of therapeutic themes. They range from emotional healing to fitness and weight loss to improved self-esteem and the capacity for work. And just let me be clear about this. Jesus is interested in your holistic healing. In other words, there is no part of your life that Jesus wants to ignore. Every nook and cranny, the past trauma, the present hurt, the joys in your life, how you work, your vocation, yes, your emotional well-being, your stability, how you see yourself, your identity. Jesus is after all of it, which can sound a little overwhelming, and he is really kind and, and a beautiful person. But hear the difference here. Jesus might actually be moving you towards some version of healing through your suffering, not apart from it. See, the soft prosperity would have, it, have us believe that there is, like, the removal of suffering is the way of Jesus. The challenge with that is Jesus, who went to a cross, who actually suffered until he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it is there in the midst of death that God vindicates his name, raising him from death to life. It, it might be through the suffering that God yields the healing we desperately desire, not apart from it. See, the gospel of, of King Jesus, it does not dismiss or dismi like diminish your suffering. Quite the opposite. The good news is that Jesus sees you there. Um, just so we can normalize this, has, has anybody in this room suffered? Is anybody presently suffering? That one's a little bit more risky to raise your hand to. Yeah, what the gospel declares over you in this moment is that Jesus sees you. He joins you in your suffering. He says, I am with you and I will not forsake you. That is the promise of Jesus that you can lay hold to. Even if those who are nearest to you despise you, reject you, Jesus says, I know what that feels like. I have been despised. I have been rejected and still I am with you. This is what the gospel proclaims and declares over you. It is not soft, but it is a firm foundation. As we prayed, it is the rock. It is our call to worship. It's our hiding place. This is Jesus.
There is no forsakenness with Jesus. And yes, your faith matters. Like faith is this movement toward. It is active trust. It is risky because it's vulnerable. Do you know what vulnerability looks like in person? Can I show you? It looks like this. I have the great um, honor of having small humans in my life. Our eldest is almost four years old. And when he is coming toward me full throttle with love and admiration, like the biggest smile, it is a risky thing. In other words, it is vulnerable for me to open up to him and receive because uh, the way that my body was designed is that there's some pain points that are available. to, And so it's like he can just careen and it's like, oh, and, it's, and so too he's learning that if he opens himself up, it can be risky because if you have a small brother who like hits you, it can also hurt. My point is this, what it looks like to embody vulnerability or risk is this, it is an openness. And isn't it curious that this is actually the position that we encounter Jesus on the cross? That Jesus is pulled open, but he says, no one has taken my life, I give it freely. There is no sense of compulsion. Jesus freely enters into that so that we might know what it is to have one join us in that and then to be drawn from death to life. So what, what is the commentary that has shaped Jesus in his life more than Jesus himself? Is it like the spirit of the age of radical individualism that you can just live your life apart from Jesus, plug him in like a good little thing whenever you need it? Is it the law and gospel thing that captured my imagination, certainty? Is it prosperity light that you want Jesus to attend to your emotional well-being but not really be Lord of your sexuality? What, what is the thing, the commentary that shaped your vision of Jesus more than Jesus? And however it is that you answer this question, my hope is, is that we would become a type of people who are willing to like interrogate the commentaries that we give to Jesus and then turn to Jesus and ask him to refresh our imaginations, to help us see him more clearly because it will be Jesus who leads us. The fact is, is we're going to follow something. It's either going to be the most impressive thing we see on social media, the, like whatever that might be according to this like interest that you have these few months, or it can be Jesus it actually is that simple. And so as we come to the close of the Sermon on the Mount, that's the question I have for us, kind of this pastoral plea to you and even to myself. What is the commentary that is shaping Jesus more than Jesus himself? See, again, each one of us is here because somebody, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, coworker, had the audacity to point us to Jesus. And there's comments along the way, but it is Jesus who we're following. And so it's to that end that I want to invite you to stand and remember that it is Jesus who will sustain us. Mm -hmm.